Hello, you are listening to KDRTLP 95.7 FM. This is Karen Modokaitis, host of How She Really Does It, where inspiration and possibility meet. I continue my search for answers to improve our lives from people who have spent their lives learning, growing, and understanding. On How She Really Does It, we bring guests on the show to really dive into issues to help inform, inspire, and empower you towards a better life. We love to hear listeners' comments about our shows or questions for upcoming guests. You can email us by going to our website, www.howshereallydoesit.com, to send us an email, or you can leave a testimonial about a show that you got some great takeaway from. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter. The best way to do that is just to go straight to our website, and those will connect you there. Our past shows are available on our website the following Monday after the live airing or as podcasts from iTunes. Why are some people so talented? Is it possible for you to be talented or your child? Today's guest, Daniel Coyle, author of The Talent Code, Greatness Isn't Born, It's, it, it's Grown. Here's how. He's here to help us discuss how talent is created. Hello, Dan. How are you? I'm good, Corinne. How are you? Great. So um, I want to first, before I just told you this off the air, but I want to let the listeners know, some of you guys know that my husband's a swim coach at UC Davis. And um, we were re- I was reading the book. I broke out the book on Saturday, started reading it. Next thing I know, he took it from me. He brought it to work. He didn't bring it back for a few days. I was like, I need that book back. He just he, he went through it. He's now using a lot of the principles that Dan talked about. And he's also, for those of you that know my husband as a coach, he's also in the past, a lot of how he's done his coaching has been on a lot of the principles. So it's pretty exciting. So, of course, we loved your book. And he goes, well, of course we love it, Corinne. You know, this is what we believe. This is what we teach. So, <laughs> but to, so I want to talk about this because, you know, I grew up um, with kind of a fixed mindset in my, I'm 37, but, you know, it was either you were intelligent or you were talented or you were not. And, um, and I was kind of afraid to, you know, I was kind of, I was, you know, a gate kid and I was a good swimmer, but I didn't think I was. And that's a whole nother thing. But I, uh, you know, was also afraid because I didn't want to lose face or have failure or really suck at anything. And so through the years and coaching has really helped me with this is that, you know, we can all get better. We can be puds and become studs, you know, and one of the things that you talk about in your book is that how important deep practice is. And can you explain to the listeners what deep practice is? Yeah, it sort of started with this trip I took. Um, I noticed that there was huge amounts of high performance, huge amounts of talented people coming from these tiny, tiny little places. Like there's a tennis club outside of Moscow called Spartak. It's produced more top 20 players than the entire United States. This club has one indoor court. It's tiny. It's in a freezing environment in Moscow. And yet what they're doing there, there's a pop music studio in Dallas that has produced um, Demi Lovato, Ryan Cabrera, Jessica Simpson, all these people, this tiny little place. Um, it's getting bigger and bigger now, but these are little, they're very poor, they're very small, and for a long time, a lot of them are unsuccessful, and then bang, something happens at these places, and so I went to go find out what exactly that was, and an important element of a pattern that you see when you go there is they're all kind of doing the same thing, and what I call it is deep practice. It's not regular practice. We think of practice as sort of this housekeeping thing. We have to scrub the floor and wash the dishes. Um, it's, it's unpleasant, but it has to be done sort of thing. What I saw here was this kind of almost magical practice where um, what they're essentially doing is building this high-speed circuitry to, that is talent, that is what, um, what that beautiful forehand might be or singing that note is. Our brains don't 
know what they're learning. Our brains are just built to learn. And so these are the places that make those brains run like Ferraris that teach us the best principles by which to acquire skills. And when they do this deep practice, what ha- what's happening in the brain? Because this was like the stuff I've been telling everybody about. <laughs> yeah, this is the fascinating stuff. And this is why, like, you know, your husband's grabbed the book. I got a call from a guy on the U.S. Olympic Committee who ordered 50 copies of the book for, for coaches. Um, and this is why it kind of does apply to everything. What's happening in the brain is you're building circuitry. And, and you're doing it. It's interesting because you go there to these places, and the kids all have the same, and the people all have the same expression on their face when they're practicing. And it looks sort of like Clint Eastwood. Their their narrow, their eyes are narrow and their jaws clenched, and they have a similar feeling they're experiencing, which is the reaching for something and almost getting it, and failing and reaching again. And it's extremely difficult to do. But neurologically, when you're doing that, what you're doing is you're building a scaffold. You're doing two things actually. The first thing is you're sort of building these connections. You're literally making connections happen in your brain. You're building this this complicated circuit that's got all these arms and edges to it, and you're creating that. You're making this connection, that connection. And the second thing you're doing is you're growing this insulation around that circuit. It's got a name. It's called myelin. But essentially, it's like this electrical tape. And like any electrical tape, it insulates that circuit and makes what happens when a circuit is insulated is the impulse goes down hundreds of times more quickly and with far more power and fluency and accuracy. So... You know, our grandmas and mothers and parents all told us that practice makes perfect. Well, that's almost right. Practice makes myelin, and perfect practice makes a lot of myelin. And when you're feeling that feeling and when you're in that sort of Clint Eastwood zone, what you're doing is you are upgrading your brain. You are building these high-speed circuits that can be used for whatever you want to use them for. And, and so deep practice is just, it's, it's like a conscious, where you're being really conscious versus you're just sloshing through a workout. There's a sweet spot right on the edge of your ability. And when you're in that edge of your ability, you learn with, with far more efficiency. Your learning accelerates 10 times. There's a, there's a great story I tell in the book about a, a girl named Clarissa who's practicing her clarinet. And she plays her first song and she plays it through just fine. It sounds like someone practicing. But then for five minutes, she practices in this different way. She's keenly tuned into each mistake. She's stopping and realizing and going really slowly. And she's practicing in all these different strategic ways. Well, in those five minutes, she does a month's worth of practice. Her, her learning speed increases 1,000%. And then she goes right back to practicing the old way. So, uh, you know, these techniques, these feelings that you can reach really are the kind of the magical leverage for doing this. You know, we understand it in muscles, right? When we want to, if we went to a gym and that gym had all these different weights on it, we would pick the amount of weight that would be kind of on the edge of what we can lift. That's how you're going to build muscle. You don't build muscle by lifting marshmallows, right? You build (laughs) muscles by by operating right on the edge of your ability. Um, And neither would you go lift a 500-pound weight because that's too much, right? So there's a sweet spot, and circuits, our neural circuits are built exactly the same way. They grow when we really stretch them and try, 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 and repeat, repeat, repeat when we're in that sweet spot of almost doing it. So the more time, and, you know, there's a, there's a name for that. You could, you know, the, the neurologists call it an event-related potential. But, in fact, you know, you can think of it as, a, as kind of a golden second. You know, this moment, this reach, this almost moment is going to give you so much more. And all of these coaching techniques that we see working effectively
hotbeds I visited, there's sort of ways of acquiring the most golden seconds. Whoever gets the most golden seconds, whoever experienced the most of them, literally will build the fastest, most beautiful skill circuit. So that's what all these contests, what, that's what you know, athletics is. That's what music is. It's, it's circuitry. And if you build it fast and you build it beautiful, then that's, that's the kind of fast, beautiful talent you'll have. Yeah, we call that speed wobble. <laughs> that's what we call it. That's good. That's a good term for it. It is. You, you can, and you're not going to get it unless you go to that speed, right? No, you have to because if, you, if you, it's too easy and you're not stretching yourself, you're not going to have growth. And, um, but, it, yeah, you're, you're kind of just you're hanging on. You're almost, you know, almost falling off, and, but, al- you know, hanging on. Um, and it's a difficult thing to do. You know, yes. it, is, it is frustrating. And it is, it is you know, in, in training, we know no pain, no gain. But when it comes to other forms of practice, whether it's athletic or musical or math or business, um, that exact same truth holds. And so the more you can get in touch and realize, you know, this is really frustrating, but there's no need to be allergic to that because, in fact, this is the no pain, no gain moment. I need to feel this frustration in order to grow the circuit. For those of you that just t- tuning in, we have Daniel Coyle, author of The Talent Code. Greatness isn't born, it's grown on how she really does it with Karen Modokaitis. So one of the things that I run into a lot, because I do coach youth still, is that, and I don't know if it's just kind of our generation, but, you know, there's a lot. I, the question I get asked, and I was asked this Saturday at a football game, oh, my child doesn't have any talent. And I'm like, well, your child's eight. They just started swimming, you know, and so I, my question always back is, well, what is your intention for them being on a swim team? And, and they look at me because they want me to tell them, is it worthwhile for their child to swim and spend the money and the time, or is it not because they don't have any talent? And ha- ha- what are your thoughts about that? Well, it's, 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 it's a very instinctive way to look at things because we are taught in our culture that talent is a possession, mm-hmm. you know, when really... What it is, it's a process, and that process begins with love, you know, with someone falling in love with an activity, and someone really wanting to be someone, you know, someone really wanting to say, you know, swimming, that's for me, music, that's for Mm -hmm. me. That is an an incredibly powerful moment when you see that moment of love. There's Carol Dweck, who I think Uh you mentioned you've you've had on the show before, uh, has a beautiful thing. She's a psychologist from Stanford who's done some fascinating, groundbreaking work on motivation. Uh, and she has a great thing. She says, you know, all parenting comes down to two things. First, you pay attention to what your child stares at. Mm-hmm. And second, you praise them for their effort. Mm-hmm. And that moment, you know, those two things are worth kind of spending a, a second on. You know, that, that moment of staring when, when a kid really, really is fascinated and, 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 and feels that emotion. Because, frankly, without that, you'll never work hard enough to get any good. You know, you can't sort of be uh, dragooned uh, or forced into into doing this stuff. And praising for effort is basically saying, yeah, we understand it's going to be hard. And what counts is the number of times you fire that circuit. What counts is trying. And, and that adds up. And each time you do try, it does work. It sounds like a hokey kind of moral thing to say, good try. But in fact, it's sort of the most neurologically accurate and accurate thing you can say, at one of the hotbeds I visited, it's the tennis club that I mentioned before, mm-hmm. they don't use the word play tennis. They actually use a word that translates more as fight or struggle. Mm-hmm. You know, so 
they don't say, let's go play tennis. They say, let's go kind of work tennis. And that language kind of reflects that effort-based experience, that effortfulness that it really, really requires. So when parents say, my child doesn't have talent, that's kind of the wrong way to think about talent. And what you can say is, my child hasn't been lit up by anything yet. My child hasn't fallen in love with anything yet. Um, that might be more an accurate thing to say. And if that's the case, as a parent, what, what does your job become? I think it becomes sort of tossing stuff out in front of the kid and seeing what chemical reaction happens. You know, if it's not violin, then maybe let's let's try foosball. If it's not foosball, let's try algebra. You know, there's there's going to be a moment where every everybody, every person in the world falls in love with something. What your book did for me, just as a you know, as a swim coach, a life coach, doing this radio show, because you know, one of the things that I think happens, unfortunately, and you brought this up even in your book. Um, with a with a studio, the woman Jessica Simpson's uh, music teacher, right? Where it says, "Oh, Jessica Simpson was an overnight success," and it's like, well, no, she went did five years of vocal work with me, and then another three and a half years later, or three years later, she had you know how many millions of albums sold. So, but people don't see you know the how many how long it takes in the process. They just see overnight success, and or we found Kelly Clarkson and she was a waitress. We like those kind of sound bites, but when you really dig deep, and that's why this shows an hour so we can really dig deep to what it is and it is about the struggle it is it is hard it's and and it's and sometimes I feel like we're afraid when things are hard it means oh see I'm not any good at this I'm wasting my time and that's when I'm jumping in and going but why are you here what is your intention is your intention as a parent because you want your child to learn how to swim well then that's a life skill you know and it doesn't really matter the outcome as long as they learn how to swim and can you know be confident so that you can go river kayaking or whatever that may be. But, you know, what is your, and that's why I like to go with what is your intention? You know, is it to expose them to something? That's fine. Is it because they love it? Well, like you said earlier, that's their motivation. If they love it, I can work with pretty much any kid that loves swimming and I can help them be better, you know, over the time. You're saying exactly what all the coaches I met said. If they've got the desire, and this is what the pop music teacher said, it's what the football coach said, it's what all the music teachers said. They say, you know what, if a kid wants it, they can. I have one guy who said, I can teach an elephant to play cello if I know what the elephant <laughs> likes to eat. And it's true. I mean, this guy literally will take people at one time for a demonstration. He dragged a guy who was, who was on a tractor on a neighboring field, and he dragged him into the studio and had him, had him taught him cello. Um, if you find out what makes what's motivating somebody, that's possible to make them learn. Our culture has it you know, sort of profoundly backwards when it comes to the way it tells stories about talent and mm-hmm. the way... It loves, and, and the story of an overnight success of mm-hmm. Kelly Clarkson waiting tables and then becoming the American Idol, or of Jessica Simpson coming out of nowhere to, to have gold records, or of, you know, literally any, any, any story you can name, Michael Jordan. Yes. Have you and seen yet, that commercial? When you, when you scratch the surface um, and you really look at the facts, and there's, there's a, a scientist who's done this by the name of Anders Ericsson who studied expertise in surgeons and nurses and police officers in chess players and darts players, everything. And this number keeps coming up. And this number is 10,000 hours, which mm-hmm. I'm sure you've probably mentioned on your show before. You know, 10,000 hours of hard practice is what is behind all these guys. They're not similar genetically. They're not similar in culture. They're not similar in height. They're not similar in anything except that all the world-class performers have practiced 10,000 hours, which actually, if you think about it in terms of natural talent, doesn't make any sense. If you believe that talent is genetic then, God, there should be somebody who only has to practice 5,000 hours. Mm-hmm. There should be somebody who only has to practice 1,000 hours. 
But there isn't. They can't find anybody. It's all 10,000 hours. If you think of it in terms of a circuit that you have to have love and you have to grow with a lot of repetition and deep practice, then it makes perfect sense that, you, that to grow these super fast, super fluent, world-class circuits takes a certain number of hours. You know, three hours a day for 10 years. And so the way that we think about talent, when we think about it as natural, when we talk to our kids about it, and we think about ourselves as if, God, I've got it or I don't, it, it is a very natural way to feel, and, and in some cases it, it sort of makes it emotional sense to think that way, but it's completely nuts to think that way when you really look at the hard facts of how expertise grows. Have you seen the Michael Jordan commercial um, about, and it, it shows, it starts out in Chicago at the, at the Bulls stadium, and it shows all his, you know, his statue and his list of professional accomplishments, and he said, you know, I think I made a mistake. He goes, I think I made it look too easy. You know, because people just saw, oh, my goodness, he's the best player in the world, and isn't this great, and look at this flashy life he gets to lead. And, you know, so often, I mean, I used to tell the story all the time to kids about how he was cut from his high school basketball team, you know, right. and then how hard. I mean, we have the saying as coaches is that we say that winners do more because if you are going to be a winner, if, you're, if you play baseball, if you play Major League Baseball, right, and you, you go off into the playoffs, you are doing more. You are working more. Your season goes longer. You know, if you are Michael Phelps and you're at the Olympics and, you know, you're swimming s trials, semifinals and finals, you're, you are doing more than other people. So a lot of times I think there was this, been this misconception in our society that, oh, if you're, on, you're, if you're a winner, you're on easy street. Right. And that's right. not true. Right. right. And that's, that's, that's sort of true when you scratch the surface between what Tiger Woods' practice yes. routine is and what, what Jordan's practice They approach practice daily practice with, that's where the real intensity is. Mm -hmm. you know, that's what they really care about. When Tiger Woods just came back from this knee injury, you know, one of the things he said was, it is such a joy to be able to practice again. You know, and I think you know, for a guy who's not always the most eloquent guy in the world or the most emotional guy in the world, I think that's a remarkable thing to say, for him to use the word joy you know, mm -hmm. in connection to this, because that's really um, where the hard work and the hard work of building those super fast, beautiful circuits, uh, that's where it happened. And, and so we tend to, to sort of downplay practice as if, as if it is, you know, just this housekeeping, when in fact there's this incredible magic that's happening. And, you know, a good way to illustrate that is what's the best way to sort of make uh, a, a world-class performer screw up? Um, what's the best way to make sure Tiger Woods doesn't win the tournament? What's the best way to make sure that, you know, uh, a great guitar player uh, like Joe Perry or something misses a chord. And you know what the answer is? It's don't let them practice for a month. You know, just don't let them practice, and they will screw up. Practice, the daily routine, is, is the thing. That's where their joy is. That's where their heart is. And that's what we downplay in our culture. But within their world, it's the only thing. And wh why is it that we downplay it? Do you know? I think it's instinctive. I think part of it is that uh, it gives, it's very tempting to, to want, you know, uh, all talent to be sort of a genetic lottery because it, it gives everybody an out. Yeah. You know? Having a genius around uh, is comforting in some ways because, hey, they're different. I couldn't have done that. And that's, that is comforting. And, and the other thing, uh, the reason is that, you know, we're built sort of to forget. When, whenever we acquire a skill, and anybody who's ever, you know, learned to ride a bike can relate, at one moment it seems 
magical and impossible, like impossibly difficult. If you ever learn to juggle or do anything like that, and then the next moment when you can do it and automate it, when your when your brain automates it, it seems sort of easy. So if you're standing on the one side of that divide and watching some genius perform, it, it really does seem miraculous it, because, because what they're doing is, is just a whole level above where you're at. But in fact, we've all experienced that feeling of, of being on one side of that divide and being an amateurish, being amateurish at something and then work, 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 and bang, you're on the other side and it seems really, really simple. You know, you can use even, even our use of language as it evolves uh, as we get older is a good example of that. So it, it's just very tempting to see it that way because it feels that way. This you know, like a lot of things in life, it, it, it feels like it can never be any different. Um, when in fact, you know, there's a mechanism there, a mechanism you can use, and a mechanism you can tap into if you figure out how it works. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't that long ago that everybody thought that marathoners, you know, think back 30 or 40 years. If you were a marathoner, like a recreational runner who was a marathoner, everybody knew, thought, that you had special genes, you know, that you were a genetic mm -hmm. freak for being able to run 26 miles without stopping. Um, well, you know, it turns out that there's this mechanism called the cardiovascular system that we essentially really figured out how it worked uh, not that long ago, and it turns out, you know, there's a lot of people that can run 26 miles without stopping if they <laughs> train in the proper way. So, and, and all these questions of skill, and particularly as it relates to education in our public schools, are kind of at a similar point, you know, we're really at a moment where the romantic, mythological view of talent, which is so tempting to believe in and so beautiful, is being replaced by uh, a more scientific, rational view of talent that says, you know what, uh, these guys didn't come from Mars, these brilliant players, they are human beings, they've got the same rough equipment that we've all got, and they built it using the same mechanism that we've all got. It doesn't mean that we can all become Michelangelo or Mozart mm -hmm. or Michael Jordan, but it does mean that we all share the same mechanism, much like you know, much like we share the same mechanism for marathon running. Mm -hmm. So if you or I decide to go out and run a marathon in the next six months, there there's a program, there's a way to do it, there are principles that we should follow, and skill and talent and uh, high performance, those things follow the same the same kind of principles. Well, and you know when people. The other thing that people tend to want is they kind of want well balanced. You know, they want their children to be well balanced or have well balanced lives. And you know, but what what tends to happen, in whether it's athletics or music or you know, any time when you're kind of on the top, is that the people that got there, it's because of irrational excellence. You know, it doesn't. You know, it doesn't make sense to swim 20 hours a week or 25 hours a week, six days a week, and because as a swimmer there's not any money in the sport, right? So people are already going, well, why? I mean, yes, you have Michael Phelps, and then you have a couple of other people, but re the reality is is that you, you could, swimmers get much better paying jobs just because of the work. They have good work ethics and so on, but they could just go out into the you know, working world and make a much better living than the potential because really the only potential as a swimmer is maybe becoming a coach. Um, and then right. again, there's not any money in that. So, um, you know, but it's, it's this irrational excellence. It's like, okay, well, why, why train that hard? Why give up that time? And one of the things that I knew with my own career is that I didn't give up that time. Yes, maybe I skipped certain events that socially, like maybe you would skip a prom or, a, you know, a junior ball or whatever because you had a swim meet. But it was about making a choice and how do you want to spend that time. So maybe I didn't follow along with everybody else, but I wanted to be at this other place. 
And, you know, when I look back at my life, it was like, okay, yeah, I missed some social stuff. And I, but it was all about making what choices did I want to make and what was my intention? Where was I going? But irrational that irrationality is at the sort of yin yang heart of this. I yes. mean, you know, look at the whole picture, the whole mechanism here. On the one hand, you've got this very intense, deliberate, principled, repetitive practice that, that all greatness mm-hmm. is made of. On the other hand, you've got this wild, irrational obsession that it's also made of, that fuels it. And so rather than uh, say it's, it's all about just having the passion or just having the practice, it's really about putting those two things together to, to sort of build something. And, you know, and what you're building there is obviously, you know, in terms of, you know, as you mentioned, with discipline and things like mm-hmm. that, you really are building a whole person. You know, each of us has got 100,000 miles of wiring in our brains, you know, mm-hmm. 100,000 yeah. miles. So when you talk about, you know, what potential is or what surprising things people can produce, um, I think of that number a lot. You know, that's enough to go around the earth four times. Um, we're constantly kind of astonished by talent, right? We're, you know, if there's a kid down the street who all of a sudden is this great rock and roll guitarist or another kid who's a great swimmer um, or, you know, a grandma who suddenly becomes a, a wonderful painter or something, we're constantly astonished by that. But, but that, that potential, that level of astonishment is part of the mechanism. You know, when you build these super fast, super high-powered circuits, they are astonishing. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they, they move a lot of information. They're incredibly fluent and beautiful. And, and so it's, it's funny that we let ourselves be astonished quite so much as we do, because, in fact, astonishment is just, that's on the ticket. You know, that's part of what it is to be human, is to be capable of astonishing things. This is Corinne Motokaitis. I have a public service announcement. Children's International Storytelling Program, Community Room at International House, 10 College Park, Davis, California, 95616, Sunday, September 20th. 2009 from 2 to 3 doors open at 145 a new season of the children's international storytelling program opens on september 20th 2009 with an exciting performance by bay area storyteller kirk walker this is corinne modokaitis and you're listening to how she really does it where inspiration and possibility meet my guest today is daniel coyle he's the author of the talent code greatness isn't born it's grown if you have questions that you would like to um, ask on the air, you can email them to us at hello at howshereallydoesit.com, and we'll see if we can get your question answered. So, Dan, one of the things that I so love about your book is that your book helps can help people get out of their own way and really see what's possible for themselves instead of having these limiting beliefs that, oh, well, I'm not talented, so I'm not good enough. Because really what it comes down to is practicing, having the motivation, the ignition, and then having a coach that can help you cor- make them correct the mistakes that you're making. That's right, and, and, and fuel the motivation, too. I mean, that was one of the interesting things about visiting the talent hotbeds, uh, one of the sort of surreal things, really, because as I went to these places, and they were all around the, all around the world, you know, I went to Brazil to look at soccer, I went to upstate New York to look at classical music, I went to Dallas to look at pop music, um, I went to a school in San Jose, California, and the... I kept meeting the same person, you know, there's this older, and, and they had the same personality, they were, they were often older, they were sort of subtle and quiet, um, they gave really short bursts of instruction, very specific instruction, and they were often very sort of theatrical personalities, um, and I, I started to think of them as sort of these, these talent whisperers, these, these potential whisperers, they, um, and, and the reason I think that they exist at all these places is that they're 
they're doing the same thing. You know, they're making these these quick, precise, very precise instructions to make you fire your circuit, your skill circuit, in the right way, and they're fueling your desire with, you know, these sort of by by ladling out um, and and sparking your love for for that thing. So, and they're these incredibly rare people. I mean, the thing that's kind of you know beautiful about it is that several times I'd go to a talent hotbed that existed only because of one of these people. You know, mm-hmm. because this tennis coach started on this tiny court in Moscow, because of her, we can say that, she's the one who built the circuitry and made this happen, you know, made them love the sport and made them work so hard and knew exactly how to work them. Um, and if you're talking about, you know, for places that would like to build talent in a community, you know, they are the Johnny Appleseeds. Uh, it's, it's a remarkable thing to see. Something which, um, you know, by the old way of thinking about talent, where all talent is sort of natural and expressed um, rather than developed, coaches are they're kind of incidental. But uh, when you think about talent in the modern, uh, more scientific way, um, these people are the catalyst. They're right there at the heart. And one of the, um, I think it was the mus- one of the music teachers that you had talked to, I maybe I could be wrong with this, but um, you had asked him, he was, working with two different people and it was like, well, who, who's going to be more talented? And he kind of said, well, you know, I teach everything that I know. I give everything out there. And then it's just all going to kind of depend on what happens, you know, because it's also what the athlete or the musician or the student is going to grab onto too. They all sort of had the same rule. And this, this guy, his name was Hans Jensen. He's the greatest cello teacher on the planet. And there were two cello, cellists playing. One of them was, uh, one of them was this Chinese kid who was amazing. And the other one was this girl from Houston who was, to my ear anyway, a little bit less amazing. And after they finished, I said, who do you think has more talent? And, and he said, can you tell the size of a tree by the size of a seedling? You know, can I look at a seedling and say how tall the tree is going to be? No, I can't. I give everyone everything. And, and the coaches that I met at these places had very similar philosophies. They were not trying to identify talent. They, they did not believe that it was born. They did not believe that you could sort of look at a room of kids and have them, you know, run through some calisthenics and say who the athletes are. They saw it as seedlings, and they Mm -hmm. saw their job as providing the appropriate kind of sunlight and water um, to let that seedling grow. And what's going to fuel that seedling is ultimately that seedling's kind of love, love for the sport. And they're remarkable people. I mean, it just makes you... um, the more time I spent at the at the talent hotbeds, the more I began to really appreciate the incredible power that a great great teacher can have, uh, and the incredible power they can have in a society that values them. And the and the teachings can they can go on, and it makes it so you know when you talk about like the tree, because you know parents and you know tell me if this happens to you because you te- you coach little league baseball, but parents want to know what is the outcome. You know, do you see talent is, uh, you know, again, is this worthy of my time and my money to do this? And do parents ask you, because I know you coach the all-star team for your son. Do parents ask you, does my child have talent? Or now do they just know because you've read the, written this book not to ask you that question? Yeah, no, right, <laughs> right. Uh, people did, did read the book and maybe they did know better than to ask. But it's hard not to think that way. I mean, you know, I'm a parent myself and I sometimes think of it that way. Um, Reflexively, you know, when you're taught that your whole life, it's, it's easy to think, oh, yes, my kid either is going to have some magical ability. And as a parent, um, 
it, it can drive you mad, you know what I mean? Because your parenting then turns into kind of a gold mining operation where you're trying to unearth what the nugget of talent your kid has. Is it ballet? Is it, is it cello? Is it uh, Scrabble? Um, and so you're constantly, and it's, it's, it's this really frustrating experience, I think, for most people where you're trying to constantly sort of dip your kid in all this different stuff to find out where the magic is happening instead of, you know, kind of leaning back, tossing some stuff out in front and seeing where the chemistry happens. Because really, that's one of the things the great coaches always ask. They always do sort of a, almost think of it like a private detective thing. They want to know why the kid or the, the student is there. They want to know what's motivating them. Are they there for themselves? Are they there to please their parents? Are they there because they think it would be nice and make them popular to do? Or are they there because they are really in love with, with some idea, with somebody they want to be, with becoming something. Um, that's, that's the question that those great coaches ask. And, you know, it, it is. It's, it's going to be interesting. You know, being a parent right now, I have a sneaking suspicion, is, you know, it's kind of evolving. I, 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 think, I think as we learn more about how this process actually works, I think we'll learn that some of these things we're doing, some of this helicopter parenting that's been going on for the last, you know, five or ten years, is showing itself, I think, to, to be a killer of the kind of processes that, that grow real talent. Um, you know, the, the kinds of things, the kinds of impulses that really create love, that really create deep practice, um, are, get squashed and, and sort of chilled by, by this, this form of parenting. So it's going to be interesting to see where this, where this goes. But you know what? If talent is a net, if you, if you believe talent to be sort of genetic, then that sort of parenting makes perfect sense. Um, but if you believe that it's a process that it has to do with falling in love and doing particular forms of difficult practice, then it makes no sense at all. Well, it, you're, this whole the talent coaches opens up so many more doors and so much more possibility, you know. And um, I'm always trying to I tell a lot of stories about because parents want evidence, you know. I mean, it, for me, it's a little bit easier I think from parenting my kids because I've coached so many kids already and I've seen pudley swimmers become studly or I've seen kids leave the sport of swimming and go on to something else and it was still was never a waste of time because one of the benefits they that they learned from being an athlete was they learned how to show up you know and and that's a really important skill that still some people struggle with but they could show up they knew how to practice every day you know maybe they learned how to communicate with a coach or whatever so there were still skills that might have transferred there's still transferability to other sports or other things that they may do but you know I, so i try to be like okay well puds can become studs and now my kids are 9 and 7 um, and i do have stepchildren that are 19 and 23 so i've already gone through the first round so that gives me again more evidence you know to be pretty relaxed i'm kind of like okay now we'll see. Now maybe when they're 15 or 16, maybe I'll struggle with it more. But, you know, just kind of like, hey, we're here. We're going to practice. We're going to keep getting better. We want ease for effort, you know. Do your best effort. That's all that we can ask for because nobody can be their best on the top of their game. Well, very few. Very few people can be at the top of their game all the time. You know, Michael right. Phelps has bad days. Tiger Woods has bad days. Michael Jordan has bad days. And if you see failure as a verdict, then, yeah, yeah. it's going to be extremely hard. But if you see you know what, inside that failure is, you know, kind of this possibility. You have to fail. You know, that's one of the things that this science sort of shows us very vividly. Failure is, is, not, is not an option, quite literally. You know, in order to get better, in order to, to build that circuit, you have to build it incorrectly before you build it correctly. You cannot be perfect if you're going to build this fast, beautiful,
thing that I think, in a way, is a redemptive message from this new science that, that you know what, uh, it, it puts a whole new light on failure. And you see this kind of vividly in some strange places, like in the, in the business community. You know, what's the biggest car company in the world right now? Well, it happens to be Toyota. Mm-hmm. They are built upon a process of incremental improvement, of recognizing they're, they're really into making these small little fixes in their factories. Uh, there was an American executive who went to work for them, and at his first meeting showed up, and they asked him how things were going, and he started in a very typically American way to kind of to brag about what was going well, and saying, well, this is going, this division is going well, and we've got this project and that project. And the Toyota executive stopped him, and they said, listen, buddy, we would not have hired you if we didn't think you were good. Tell us what your problems are so that we can fix them. Uh-huh. And that's, you know, Toyota is like this giant, deep-practicing brain that's constantly super alert, not allergic to the airs, but super alert to them, because that's the map. They show you the map of how you're going to grow. And if you if you take that as a verdict, if you take that error as a verdict, as I'm good, then you're closing yourself off to the possibility of that growth that will create the good circuitry. So, you know, when you see someone walking away from something because they say, I'm not good at it. Well, in fact, they just made that come true. You know, by, by saying that, that is going to close them off to the, to the potential for future growth. And to somebody who says, huh, that's kind of weird. That ball went off to the left. That's interesting. I wonder what I should do to make it go a little more to the right. And, and taking it that way instead of saying, oh, well, I, that ball went off to the left and I really suck. It's like, okay, there's information. How can I make this better? How c- mistakes are not mistakes. Mistakes are information. And that's how, you know. You say, you say it perfectly well, right. Well, and, I, and when I talk with parents, I say a lot of times, well, you know, how, when do we learn? We learn when it's, it's difficult for us, when we struggle, you know, or when we make mistakes. And, you know, when things are easy, we tend not to really learn them as much. And we tend not to notice that. Um, and if we don't make mistakes, we, that's not when we have our big growth. You know, because we'll have right. t- discussions about, oh, my child got DQ'd, and I, why, why is that official so mean? And it's, it's not about the official being mean. It's about this is a great teaching opportunity. I've got your child engaged now because, okay, yes, maybe they didn't get that ribbon. But better than not get that ribbon at eight and learn something, you know, than miss out on what, and this actually is a true story in USA Swimming, be an Olympian or be the world record holder and be disqualified at the Olympic trials and not be able to go to the Olympics. You know, wow. because that was something that was not caught at more local, regional areas. So, um, you know, it's like, where where do you want the mistakes to happen? Let's make lots of mistakes. Or, you know, like what I tell with my life coaching clients or when I teach beginning swimming, like well, when I teach beginning swimming for adults, it's okay if we suck at it. You know, can you just be okay to suck at it? Because if you do right. that, now you're not worried about failure. You're like, okay, I'm on the very bottom. There's nowhere right. to go but up. <laughs> right. Right. How healthy is that? And it's honest, and it's true, and that's, that's the first step. I mean, why is it, in all the great, you know, all the biographies of great men and women, you know, from Lincoln to Truman, um, you know, if you look at their lives, they are a surprisingly high percentage, are, Churchill would be one of these, are records of huge failures. Failure, 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 over and over again, and they can't run a business, and they can't be elected to Congress, and they fail at it's a dazzling record of failure, and then bang, you know, then then they're a big success, right? Um, that is that is a recurrent pattern for a really good neurological reason, right? Because the real value there is persistence. 
real value is there is somebody who takes that failure not as a verdict, but who takes it as, you know, there's some information here that I can learn from and that they did learn from. And so um, it's, they're inspiring stories for kind of moral reasons. You know, it's morally, it's an uplifting story. But it's not just for moral reasons. It's, it's a profound, there's a principle there. There's a, a principle there that, that's part of the way the world is built, you know. Um, it's not just some magic because you fail a lot. It's because that's the way we get better. Well, when when you fail, there's as as long as we're don't when we fail, isn't it just as important to learn at okay, why did this mistake happen? Because if you just fail and you're not paying attention and you're not conscious about it, that's not going to help with the deep practice, is it? No, there's all kinds of information inside of failure, right? You can yeah. look at it a bunch of different ways. It can be connected to something you did or something someone else did. Whereas success teaches the same lesson over and over again, you know, which is wow, I did that. Um, so yeah, it's it's this it's this huge huge opportunity that I think in some ways when we build our our sports clubs when we build our classrooms, we're not building them along those lines. You know, we're not building them around those lines to create those moments where they're going to sort of squint like Clint Eastwood and and feel that feeling and know that they're feeling it right and know that it's happening. You know, in the book I give a, a little example of this this test you can give people where they look at two columns of words, right? And in one of them, their recall gets boosted 300 mm-hmm. percent because of this tiny change. Um, so their IQ basically goes up 300 percent because of this tiny change. The way that changes the way that they look at it. So when you tune into those, if you can learn to recognize that feeling and learn to recognize and, and get accustomed to the idea that hey, it's not a verdict, it's a possibility. Um, that's where you're going to have institutions line up with the natural mechanisms of the brain. This is Karim Motokaitis, and I'm wrapping up our discussion with Daniel Coyle and his book, The Talent Code, Greatness Isn't Born, It's Grown. And so, Daniel, one of the other components you talk about is master master coaching and, um, and the feedback. And one of the things when I um, am working with, because I have a lot of, like, my husband's athletes coach with us, and, we, you know, we have a lot of college students, and one of the things that I started telling them was that, because they'll look at my husband and myself and be like, well, I can't be Peter Corinne. I'm like, look, I don't want you to be Peter Corrin. It's the essence of who you are, and I'm okay if you're willing to suck at it as long as you're willing to get better. And when this one kid, and he worked out, he was great. He did a great job for a first-year coach this summer. But his mouth dropped open because here, you know, he's a University of California student, athlete, right? He's been told his whole life that he has to work hard in the pool, that he has to work hard in, the, in, in school because if he messes up academically, he loses his shot, right? And now that's not totally true because you may have to go a longer route, but, but that's what he's told. And when I said, look, you can suck, well, I feel like I helped give him some freedom to go, okay, I'm going to try stuff. I'm going to do things. And I go, look, we mess up. We make mistakes every day on the pool deck. We're not perfect right. beings. We try to do the best that we can. But he just he rocked it on the pool deck this summer. Parents were just like, oh, my gosh, who is this guy with our children? You know, and, again, it was about letting his, the essence of who he is, instead of trying to be a mini Peter, mini Karen, you know, on the pool deck. But why is master coaching so important? Well, it's, it's, it's really the people who stand at kind of the intersection of where the skill is formed, who say, all right, here's, here's the motivation, and here's the precise circuit you need to fire right now. Here's what you need to do now, and now, and now, and now. And who can answer that question, what do you need to do right now, in real time, thousands of times, over and over again. And this is why these people are so rare, um, because it takes sort of 
two different sets of skills. I mean, you need to, A, have the deep, deep knowledge of what you're doing, mm-hmm. of the backstroke, of, <laughs> of the forehand, of the cello. Uh, you know, you need to have that completely wired. Plus, you need to understand how people work, and you need to understand how to deliver that information right at the right time. This is, you know, sort of the equivalent of being a great marathon runner and a great violinist at the same time. I mean, that's why these people are so magnificent and can have such an impact, um, and why if you treat it as, you know, we sort of treat being a good teacher as something that's sort of like everything else, kind of a natural talent, you know, he's a natural teacher. And this kid of yours sounds like he's got, you know, definitely uh, some some great potential, but only over the time and years, and if he's interested in putting in the deep practice, mm-hmm. say, you know what, this worked, that didn't work. A lot of times in our culture, we're mistaken great motivators for great coaches. You know, and those two skills are very, very distinct. Someone can be a great, great motivator and have the kids all excited, but unless he can answer the question, what do I do now, 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 over and over again and be really, really, really precise, then um, he's only going to be doing half the job. And it's, it's interesting. A lot of the, the great coaches that I met uh, in the talent hotbeds were, were older, and that's mm-hmm. partly because it just takes a lot of time to, to pick this up. And a lot of them came out of, you know, a lot of education. In, in, in Russia, you can actually go to school to coach tennis, and all these guys did. You know, it's, it, they don't take that part of it lightly. It, it, I mean, it is a lot of work, and it's always growing and learning. And, you know, my husband was at the World Championship Trials this summer, and he was talking to Nort Thornton, who was the Cal men's coach for a long time, and he's now retired, and he's still he's a volunteer coach. But, you know, Nort's just so excited because he's figured out another way. His, his breaststrokers swam phenomenal, and they figured out another way, you know, to train them and to do stuff. And my husband came back. He goes, I can do this job forever because it's always wow. changing and growing. You know, it's not just They're the stagnant. happiest people yes. you've ever met, really. Because it's, you know, even a brain surgeon does not have this much kind of excitement. And you get both the excitement of doing a very complicated thing precisely, which is incredibly exciting, and you get this human connection of seeing the joy that can come out of it. I mean, it's the most fulfilling job in the world. I can't imagine there being a job that could compete with that. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And one of the other things that you talk about, though, and this is really representative of this young coach that I have, is that sometimes, you know, like when you when you went back and talked to like some people who were, you know, great athletes or great musicians, it wasn't that they had when they were younger years, like the best swim coach or the best musical teacher, you know, they had maybe the neighbor next door. And, and why is that so important at that time, that early time frame? Well, particularly for, for difficult things like I think swimming and piano are a good example. Um, What you're really developing there is, the love, mm-hmm. you know, the love that's going to that's going to fuel that later effort. And in the early times of doing complicated, difficult things, um, deepening and developing that love through, and a coach is the perfect person to make you do that. My my children were lucky enough to have a, a marvelous piano teacher who she was 83 years old. She's this tiny little woman who lived in a cabin down by the river, um, but she was incredibly good emotionally with the kids and she brought such a thrill into their lives connected with the piano and she had you know she gave them chocolate she was immensely skilled she was immensely skilled at 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 cultivating and igniting love and so to see that happen that's what's happening for the for the young people that are doing it michael phelps had bill bowman let you know for quite a while but 
it'd be more interesting. And I think of this after Michael Phelps won the Olympics, all the kids in our neighborhood went and jumped in the pool and swam, 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 swam. <laughs> yes. that, that kind of love and finding people who will who will ignite that. Those are just kind of everyday people around us, and it's kind of thrilling to be able to appreciate their skills and realize how much they are really at the heart of people that grow up to be world class talent. Well, and you know, and and that's the thing is that you know Bob Bowman was out here in Napa not too long ago before he, well before he started coaching Phelps you know and he was working he was apprenticing basically under one of the best swim coaches in the world at the time Paul Bergen um, you know and um, and so he learned a lot and then he wound up going to North Baltimore and he really grew with Michael Phelps I mean he was Phelps's coach since he was a little kid and they grew up together you know and so they have a relationship and he you know is a huge student of the sport himself and so it was an amazing partnership that the two of them have in the way that that program set up and one of the things that with my coaches that I do is, you know, cause I, like I say, okay, you can suck at it. But then the other thing is that I, I go, you know, our job as coaches is just to show and to teach why the sport, why we love the sport so much, because it's irrational yeah. for us to do it, but we love it, right. you know, and why right. is it that we love it? And, you know, that's, again, when it comes to the ignition, that's what's going to ignite some of those kids to say, hey, this is where I want to spend my time and energy you know, my parents' money is doing this sport. I just love it. I don't know why, but I do, you know, and it's, right. and it's us teaching. And, you know, sometimes people say, oh, you know, they want to have, um, you know, my husband as their kid's coach or they want me as their kid's coach. And, you know, and, and sometimes it's like some of the kids can't hang with my husband. I mean, you gotta, you're kind of, he's got his own little tribe happening there, you know, and he has this group right. of nine, 11 year olds right now, but you know, you've got to be pretty tough because they're just going. And it's not that yeah. he's pounding them away, but he works their brain so hard, you know. Yeah. And so it, do, it it doesn't mean your kid's not good enough or won't eventually be there, but he may not be the entry person. Now, he's pretty adaptable because he can coach many levels. But, um, you know, so that's the other thing is for p parents, hopefully, the message of this is not to discount somebody who doesn't have, like, all the credentials after their name. Because if they're meeting Completely. your child where they're at, that's the most important thing. Which makes perfect sense if you see it as this growth process. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's a process, then yes, certain people at certain times make the most sense, and and you need to you need to have that individualized connection between the coach and the athlete that makes all the difference. That that chemistry, that connection is the you know that thread uh, connecting them is really the the conduit for all the for all the love and excitement that it can create. Dan, this has been great fun talking to you today. Thank you so much. You're really welcome, Chris. I enjoyed it. And, and if anybody wants to get more, there's some there's some stuff we have on the web at thetalentcode.com. Yeah, um, you have. Uh, it's, uh, it's out there. We've been we've been taking a look at all that stuff. So great stuff that you have, and you know, thank you for really opening up more of the possibilities and helping you know let people know what's truly possible for themselves or their children. So you uh, definitely. My pleasure. It's really things. fun knocking this stuff around with you. Well, thank you, Dan. This is Karen Motokaitis, and thanks for listening to How She Really Does It at KDRT LP 95.7 FM. We um, have a great weekend. Oh, absolutely. We're getting a lot of positive feedback, so thank okay. you very much. All right, Dr. Hawkins, take care. Bye-bye. This is Karen Motokaitis, and thanks for listening to How She Really Does It on KDRTLP 95.7 FM. We love to hear our listeners' comments about our shows or questions for upcoming guests. You can email us by going to our website, www.howshereallydoesit.com, 
or you can tweet us at www.twitter.com forward slash Karen Motokaitis. Our past shows are available on our website or as podcasts from iTunes. My name is Beth Banks, and I'm the Senior Minister at the Unitarian Universalist Church of Davis. I welcome you to these few minutes of storytelling in our program, Sparks from the Flame. For more information about the UU Church of Davis, please visit our website at www.uudavis.org. The views expressed in this piece are not necessarily those of KDRT. If we are not aware of the dynamics of power around us and how we participate, instead of creating what we love, we can unwittingly be part of its destruction. This is a story about power. In mid-December, my 91-year-old mother died, and I traveled to her home on Cape Cod and worked with my sisters to close her apartment. One afternoon, we pulled three chairs up to the chest where she kept her mementos. Her high school diary with a broken leather strap that held it shut was there. First locks of each daughter's silky blonde hair folded into three separate yellowed envelopes. Letters to her brothers and sisters, all deceased now. In the bottom of the drawer, we found a history of the young women who worked in the textile mills of Lowell. The girls, sometimes as young as 12 years old, were often thought of as down-on-their-luck unfortunates. That may have been true for some, but many were educated and worked to supplement the income of their families on the farm. They came to work in the mills to pay off the farm mortgage, save for a dowry, send money home for aging parents, or to finance their brother's higher education. Many joined groups called improvement circles, where they would expand their education, learn to write prose and poetry, and would meet women from many areas of the country. But their lives were far from perfect. It just so happened that on the flight out to Boston, I read a book full of social justice essays, and one was written by a factory girl in Lowell in 1836. Wages had been cut, hours increased, and conditions had deteriorated. The women did something that was unheard of and unexpected. They decided to strike. One of the basic characteristics of lasting power that endures is not who is larger, stronger, smarter, wealthier. Power is the ability to listen and to be seen as worthy of listening to. Harriet Hansen was a very young Lowell Mill girl, and she wrote this. One of the girls stood on a pump and gave a speech, declaring that it was their duty to resist all attempts to cut the wages. It was the first time a woman had spoken in public. At the appointed day and time, one by one, the rooms of workers filed out of the factory and the looms stopped. The mill became increasingly silent. When it was time for Harriet's room of workers to leave their looms, they stood around debating yes or no. At the rallies, they were sure that they'd join with everyone and leave the factory, but now, in this moment, they weren't so sure. Harriet was one of the youngest mill workers, and she'd realized later that she really didn't understand the consequence of her actions. She challenged the other women. I don't care what you do. I'm going to walk out. And everyone followed her. 
In her later years, she wrote that looking back over her shoulder and seeing the line of young women behind her was one of the proudest moments of her life. Who had the power? The mill owners who held the purse strings, the access to the money that the workers needed to live. Was it in the young woman who stood on the pump and astounded everyone with her speaking? Was it in the silence created by the abandoned looms? I challenge you to claim your own power, to speak even though you fear you will be the only one. You just may find that others are waiting to find out that they are not alone, to hear the power of their own voices. For more information on the UU Church of Davis, please visit our website at www.uudavis.org. Thank you.